If you, like most of us, have been watching the coverage of the war in Ukraine, you're understandably shocked by the death and destruction. And while coverage has been extensive on global news outlets, many viewers are seeing something else, bias and racism, both in how the war is being reported and how black refugees are being treated at the border. Joining us to discuss this is H.A. Hellyer. H.A. Hellyer is a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace and Cambridge University, where his research focuses on international relations, faith and security in the West and the Middle East. Welcome to Reset. Thank you so much. Very pleased to be here. And Kimberly St. Julian Varnon is a historian and Ph.D. student at the University of Pennsylvania, whose work focuses on race, foreign policy and culture in the U.S., Russia and Ukraine. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Kimberly, let's start with the recent reports of how black people are being treated when trying to cross the borders out of Ukraine. I've been seeing video footage for days online of African students in Ukraine being pushed off of trains heading to Poland and, and being pushed to the back of the line, even beaten at border crossings. What are you hearing and seeing? I've seen many of the same videos, and I, I think it's horrifying and, and shocking. And I think another aspect of this that we necessarily haven't been seeing a lot, but I've been hearing from my contacts on the ground, is also we have a diplomatic crisis at the border. You have African, Indian, and you know, Middle Eastern students who are trying to go through the border in Poland in particular, which is where a lot of these videos are happening, and they don't have any diplomatic or embassy representation in Poland or um, along the border. So it makes it much more difficult for them to get through and to transit into these countries. Um, another problem is we also have just like 20-hour, 15-hour wait times across the Polish border for everyone. And so in a lot of these videos, we not only see instances of racist violence, but we see African students and, you know, brown students who are out in the cold, who are waiting, um, you know, to get through. So a key part of this is the fact that many of these students, they get taxis or they get buses to about 30 miles out from the border, and then they're having to walk. And this isn't just students, this is a mini Ukrainian residence. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're seeing is part of a greater humanitarian crisis developing along the border. Does it seem clear to you, given what you just explained, Kimberly, that the um, black Ukrainians and Africans, are they being discriminated against as they try to flee the country? I think we've definitely seen instances of discrimination. And that, and we really can't underplay that. But it's not just within Ukraine. It's inside of Ukraine, along the Ukrainian side, but also along the Polish side. Um, so this is a, a multi-country problem that we're looking at. I see. So as we mentioned, a, a lot of the, the black people fleeing the country, they are foreign students, right, from places like Ghana and Nigeria and Cameroon. How serious do you think that these allegations are? I think they are serious. And I have seen um, some, I mean, the heart-wrenching videos. And I do think that one of the best things that we can do is try to put pressure on officials who are at the border, you know, to work against this. Um, but also, I think, and I've been talking about this on my social media, is leveraging the contacts we do have in the ground to get as many resources as we can to these students who are often by themselves or don't have anyone at the border or any embassy protection to even help them in these situations. Mm -hmm. H.A., you know, while the world is rallying support for the Ukrainian people, are you surprised that they would treat black refugees this way? Uh, so, again, as you said, we, we need to confirm 
um, how systematic this is, um, as opposed to uh, cases of discrimination that are taking place. Um, we, uh, I've, I've also seen many of these same reports, as you mentioned. Um, I'm not sure if these are Ukrainians um, who are also of ethnic minorities of, of black origin or African origin and so on, or if this is really about just passports, um, in which case that's slightly different. Uh, but it does mean that there's a problem here. And I think the Ukrainians, to be fair, at least on the on the top level, they've made it clear that they recognize that there is a problem. I think the, it was the Minister of Foreign Affairs who yesterday came out and said that and said, you know, we, we know that there's been cases of discrimination on the border or maltreatment or uh, so on. And we take this very seriously and we are going to try to rectify this ASAP. Um, so I think that that's, that's one part of it. Um, and as your other guest mentioned, it's not just about Ukraine. It's also about countries that they're fleeing to mm-hmm. and how they're reacting and how they're responding. And unfortunately, I'm not surprised because keeping in mind that we've seen refugee flows um, across the European continent and, of course, within the, uh, of course to the United States as well um, before in very recent history. And... Uh, it's not open borders. It's not that people are being let in because they're refugees. Um, uh, people are often being turned away. People are being uh, pushed away, literally, in the Medi- uh, into the Mediterranean Sea uh, and so on. So yeah. the continuation of that policy is hardly surprising to me. What is new is that Ukrainians now apply under another system to bypass that incredibly inhumane system. Kimberly, I've heard some reports that uh, some of the African students have been accepted into Romania with more ease. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that too? Yes, um, and I actually have contacts on the ground, and I'm trying to establish contacts with the Romanian embassy and representatives in the Romanian embassy along the border. I mean, I completely agree with Dr. Hellyer, where this isn't surprising um, for many of us who work on the region. I mean, just in December, we saw a conflict between Poland and Belarus along their borders, with Syrian refugees who were often in the same conditions that we're seeing along the border now. Um, So I think that's also an an important context for what we're seeing today along the Polish border with Ukrainian refugees. Should we view this as an example of how war brings out the worst in people, Kimberly? Not necessarily, because I've also spoken to African students who have gotten help from Ukrainians as they're trying to get into the border and also who've received free passage once they've gotten into Poland, who've received food and comfort in Poland. I have contacts on the ground who are helping African students who are stuck in places like Sumy that are being bombarded by Russians and the Russian military. So I think it's both. We can see some of the worst parts of humanity, but we also are seeing a lot of good parts of humanity in this situation. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with historian Kimberly St. Julian Varnon and Middle East and International Affairs scholar H.A. Hellyer about how black refugees are being treated at the Ukrainian borders. Now we're going to flip the lens to look at ourselves, the media at large, and talk about an apparent double standard in how the war in Ukraine is being reported. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. These are prosperous middle class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still 
in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. H.A., turning to you first on this, you know, a lot of us have been glued to our screens watching the horrors unfold in Ukraine. Many of us have noticed that something that you wrote so eloquently about in an op-ed for The Washington Post. Can you share that with us? So it's it's not the first time that I, and I'm sure no one else on this call, have, have seen conflicts being reported. Um, and uh, I want to state from the outset that there are some really amazing journalists and reporters that are on the ground risking their lives to bear witness to the atrocities that they uh, that they see. Um, and it's it's through their very, very sterling work that we get to know about your stuff. What was really shocking, um, uniquely so to me over the past week, is seeing statement or hearing statements precisely like the ones that you just aired, um, where uh, people who really should have known better um, were saying these sorts of things as though, oh, um, it's it's kind of normal when people in Afghanistan or in Iraq or in Syria or so on. It's, it's kind of normal when they live through conflict and war and suffering. But when it happens to people who, quote unquote, look like us, and, you know, there's a whole question there about what us actually stands for in that regard, um, then no, that's, that's, that's completely a different level of, uh, of horror and atrocity. And it really isn't, yeah. is it? I mean, on the contrary... We're all human beings, and it's very clear that, of course, what is happening in Ukraine is a massive tragedy. And I, I try to make it very clear in my piece that I'm not, I'm not interested in engaging in, in what aboutery. I'm not bringing this up because I think that uh, we need to diminish the suffering of the Ukrainian people or deflect from the crimes that Putin and his forces are engaging in. On the contrary, I'm in full solidarity with Ukraine. It's not hard to report on this sort of stuff in a way that isn't racist, that isn't bigoted, that doesn't buy into these ridiculous frames right. where we say things like, oh, this is the first time that there's been a war that's been, uh, that's been on social media. It's like, no, no, not it's at not. all. Right. Um, it's not even the first time that Russia has bombarded a civilian population and it's been streamed on social media. But the last time that happened was on a brown Muslim population, i.e. the people of Syria, you know? Um, So all of these sorts of things, it's, you know, the invisibility of these populations is striking. And arguably, and this is, you know, an analytical point, but arguably because we behave like that, because we have seen these populations as somehow less than, it's frankly given uh, a huge wind in the sails of somebody like Putin and other authoritarians because they realize that you know the West is going to engage on particular types of populations but not others yeah. um, to the same extent at all. And of course, it empowers them. So yeah. in, in, one, in one very direct way, our engagement in that way has, has really empowered and emboldened Putin to do precisely what he's doing right now. Yeah. So we're clear there are plenty more examples of what H.A. just described. One correspondent said, quote, we're talking about Europeans leaving in cars that look like ours. And uh, a news anchor said, we're in a European city and we have cruise missile fire as if we were in Iraq or Afghanistan. Can you imagine? Uh, here's a CBS reporter speaking a few days ago saying something very similar from the ground in Ukraine. 
But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. That reporter apologized after those comments. But Kimberly, what are your thoughts here? I mean, I think the words tell on themselves. And I mean, I've been working on Ukraine for over 10 years now, and I felt the same way in 2013 and 2014 on the coverage of the forced annexation of Crimea and how Russia, you know, invaded Luhansk and Donetsk in the east. And the coverage was very much the same in terms of people cared for a week and then it dropped off. And so I think this is one of the ways in which we can see solidarity between Ukrainians and Syrians and that people carried at the initial onset and then it disappeared. And I completely agree with Dr. Hellyer because of our earlier treatment of populations in Syria, but also I would argue in 2014 in Ukraine that we see Putin behaving the same way he is now. To even the idea that Ukrainians are relatively civilized or that Ukrainians are relatively European, that just shows how limited the proximity to whiteness and Western Europeanists Ukrainians have and that they're gaining. And so I think these are also really important when we understand how new this care for Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe is. I mean, we saw similar conversations in the Balkan Wars in the 90s. So the positionality and the proximity to whiteness of East Europeans and Southern Europeans is always changing in these contexts. So, Kimberly, is it a skewed perspective that we have here in the Western world on on war? Do do we view it as a third world experience? Is that the issue? Oh, yes. And for him to say we've met, you know, we haven't seen anything like this in Europe that ignores the Balkan wars. It also ignores the war that Ukraine's been fighting against Russia in the east for eight years. The Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association, Amija, has uh, called some of the news coverage orientalist and racist, saying it, quote, ascribes more importance to some war victims over others. H.A., how pervasive is this kind of biased coverage? So there's a few points. One, uh, just to follow on what Kimberly just said, um, it's not just about the war in Ukraine over the past eight years or the Balkan Wars. We're talking about Europe. Europe is the uh, the scene for the Holocaust. Europe is the scene for World War II, World War One. I. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary to sort of, you know, put this protective bubble around Europe as though uh, it doesn't see conflict. It's seen some pretty horrendous conflict in living memory. So that's one. Two, um, in terms of the statement from the, um, uh, the association, uh, I think it is quite persuasive. But I, I want to make a, a structural point here. Many of the people that are engaged in saying even those statements that you, you aired right now, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that they're all racist. That's really underestimating the problem. It's not that they're racist. It's that they exist within an ecosystem where these assumptions are held by so many people. And these people can be very nice and very kind and very, I mean, they might even be married to people of color and so on and so forth. But the entire framing of how they view the region uh, takes these sorts of things as granted. Um, uh, This idea of, you know, that's civilized, that's not civilized. I uh, I mean, there are some that are just flat out racist and bigoted, you know, but, you know, it, 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 it would be a, a huge underestimation of the pervasity of the problem to just say that, you know, this is about, 
you know, uh, a whole bunch of people being racist. It's, it's uh, to my mind, it's actually much worse than that, where you can have entirely normal, intelligent, very decent human beings saying and doing things that are really quite atrocious because of the ecosystem that they live amongst, and they're not consciously aware. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and then there'll be others, you know. So you mentioned the media, and uh, you asked about pervasiveness. It's not just in the media. Okay, so I'm not I'm not going to talk about the pervasiveness of racism in uh, in American public life and political life because then that would be a whole new program, and you right. know, we'd be here all day. Um, but I will just bring up, you know, literally just one quote, which was the Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov, who said earlier this week about the Ukrainians, and I quote: "These are not the refugees we are used to." These people are Europeans. These people are intelligent. They are educated. This is not the refugee wave we have been used to. People we were not sure about their identity. People with unclear pasts who could have even been terrorists. Mm-hmm. End quote. You know, so your assumption is that all of these other people, i.e. Afghans and Syrians and Iraqis, that they could have been terrorists. Why? Why, why is this assumption being and, and this is not a minor sort of voice. This is not a solitary sort of thing being said. This is the prime minister of a European country, right. a, a very noted state. So I, what, what is going on here? And mm-hmm. what's going on is that, unfortunately, we have accepted these frames and those frames will continue no matter how nice people are. But those frames will continue until there's a real awareness right. that they have to be taken down and reconstructed. Just a few seconds to go here. I'll give you a quick last word, Kimberly. Your final thoughts on this? Um, I, I'm in complete agreement with Dr. Hellyer, and I think what we do have to think about is a complete reframing and reanalysis of how we've been using language and talking about refugees and, and victims of war from Europe and the Middle East, because, as you said, this is not a third-world problem. Some of the most violent and deadliest wars are homes in Europe. So this is a very European conflict in that situation. We'll have to leave it there for now. That is Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, historian and Ph.D. student at the University of Pennsylvania, and H.A. Hellyer, Middle East and International Affairs Scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace and Cambridge University. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.